Let's pray. Lord, we do declare this morning what you have told us about yourself in your word, what you have shown us throughout history as we read scripture, and what you've proven in our own lives. You are faithful. You are faithful. Father, I ask that as we consider this morning your faithfulness and your goodness and your purposes in and through the church, that you would receive all the glory, that our hearts would be turned towards you, filled with gratitude, filled with hope. Lord, be glorified this morning in this place. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'd like to invite you this morning to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. As we mentioned at the beginning of the service, one year ago, we were meeting in a rented space. We weren't even looking at buying. But now here we are in a newly renovated building that we can call our own. And it's all because God is faithful. God has provided abundantly. He has guided us every step of the way. And he's blessed us with this place that we can use as a tool for ministry, as a place for the church to gather and worship our faithful God, to worship the glorious Christ, a place where Christians can come and join to sing. And scripture makes it clear that for God's people, it is of utmost importance that we recognize his work, that we thank him, that we remember. We see this all throughout scripture. In Joshua chapter four, the children of Israel cross a flooded river. God parts the water just like he did for their fathers at the Red Sea. And they walk through on dry ground, and he instructs them to pick up 12 stones and pile them up on the far bank of the river so that the kids would ask why. So there would be something to remind them of what God had done to provide for his people. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus heals 10 lepers. One returns and gives thanks and falls down at Jesus' feet, and Jesus asks this convicting question, where's the other nine? Even in the instructions given to us for the Lord's Supper, we are told by Jesus in Luke chapter 22 to do this in remembrance of him. All throughout scripture, there is a high priority put on remembering the Lord and on thanking him. The danger of forgetting, the spiritual danger of us forgetting what God has done is that it reveals a heart that is unmoved by God's goodness and God's grace. May that not be so here. May there be no hearts here today that are unmoved by God's goodness and God's grace. If that is the state of our heart, not only does this result in diminished worship and gratitude, if we're unmoved by God's goodness and grace, if there's no remembrance, if there's no worship, yes, it diminishes the glory that should be ascribed to God. But it also leaves us painfully ill-equipped to face the future. When we forget what God has done in the past, we forget his promises, his purposes, his faithfulness. It will leave us uncertain, fearful, or perhaps self-reliant. But listen, what God has done throughout history and what God has done here in this church should produce in us both gratitude for what he's done in the past and confidence in what he will do in the future. 
We ought to be profoundly thankful this morning for God's faithfulness. He deserves to be praised. He deserves to be honored. He deserves to be glorified for what he has done. But we also ought to be a confident people, a people filled with expectation and hope, not presumptuous, but confident in his promises that God will continue to do all that he has promised and purposed for his glory in the church. So today, as we pause to consider what God has done here, I want us to focus not on this building, but to focus on our Lord, to turn our attention to him. And to help us to do this, I want to take a slow walk through the words of Jesus here in Matthew 16. Now, there is much in this passage that is worthy of our attention. There is a famous statement about the rock upon which the church will be built. There's a frequently debated statement about what it means, these keys to the kingdom. But I want to focus on the words of Jesus in verse 16 when he says this, I will build my church. I'm going to read starting in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 16. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus is speaking here to the twelve, and he's in Caesarea Philippi. And Matthew includes this detail because Caesarea Philippi would have been well known to Matthew's readers. And the detail is here for a reason. It forms a really dynamic backdrop and context for this statement of Christ. Caesarea Philippi was at the base of Mount Hermon. It's about 25 miles north of Galilee. And this area was mostly Gentile. There were very few Jews living in this region because it was a place of much pagan idolatry. There was more than a dozen pagan temples that were built here at this place. In fact, there was a major center of worship that was really centered around a large cave, this cave in Mount Hermon that had an underground spring, an underground river flowing within it. And this river sort of seeped out into this marshy area. This river came out at the bottom of the mountain. And it was thought that this cave, this, the, the, this opening in the side of the mountain, was actually a point of entry to the underworld the realm of the dead. They referred to it as the gates of Hades, or as it's translated here, the gates of hell. This is where idolatrous worshipers assumed that their gods would often spend the winter underground. And each spring, these pagan worshipers would engage in all sorts of detestable worship practices, which I won't mention here, um, because they wanted to entice these gods to return and to sort of kick off the spring. It was an ancient fertility cult. Originally, the Canaanite god Baal was worshipped here, and later the Greek gods sort of replaced the Canaanite gods. You know, people are always 
just slapping new labels on things and continuing to do the same type of stuff. And what these worshipers would do was slaughter goats to the Greek god Pan. And they would throw these goats into the mouth of the cave. And then they would watch the river that flowed out from the mountain. If they saw blood in the river, they assumed that the gods must have rejected their sacrifices. But if the water was clear and there was no blood, then they believed that these fertility gods, this god Pan, must have accepted their sacrifice. This is where Jesus is standing. This is what's going on all around them. Jesus is likely standing in the shadow of these these scores of temples and this cave that was considered the entrance to the underworld where all of this pagan worship took place. Jesus is sort of in the spiritual red light district of the day where all this immoral worship dominated the landscape. And Jesus here asks the 12 this crucial question, who do you say that I am? Yes, there's all these gods, there's all this worship, there's all this stuff happening in the world, but who do you believe me to be? That's the question. Peter, speaking on behalf of the 12, confesses Jesus to be the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the son of the living God. Peter's confession is a rejection of the world. It's a rejection of the world's corrupt worship. It's even a rejection of the government-sanctioned systems that were all in place here at Caesarea Philippi. And this is what all believers must confess, that Jesus is Lord and there is no other. And then Jesus makes this incredible statement on the heels of Peter's confession. It is a promise and one that reveals Christ's power and his purpose. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus says this in the shadow of these pagan temples, at the epicenter of that region's spiritual darkness and entrenched generational corruption. Jesus announces that his church His promise, his purpose will triumph. Although it's only a small band of 12 standing there speaking, the explosive truth that Peter had just confessed, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, this would be a spark that would later spread like wildfire. The book of Acts says that these men turned the world upside down with their preaching. Their preaching in which they declared Jesus to be the Christ, the risen son of the living God. As John would later write of Jesus, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Nobody's worshiping Baal anymore. Nobody's sacrificing to Pan. And all around the world this morning, people are worshiping Christ. I want us to carefully consider this statement of Jesus and look at each one of these five words. He says, I will build my church. 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 And Jesus says, I will build what? My church. This is very simply an extended meditation this morning on this profound sentence that Jesus uttered that day to his disciples. Let's look at the first word in this statement. He says, I will build my church. I think often we read too quickly through scripture. We don't slow down and chew on the little details that are there. And notice who is it that builds the church? Who is it? It's Jesus. He says, I 
will build my church. Jesus builds his church. What this means for us today is that it's not the pastor who builds the church. It's not our church planting team that built this church. It's not our strategies. It's not our methods. It's not our advertising, which there hasn't been any, or our website. It's not even the amazing music and worship that people you know, serve us so well. Jesus Christ himself is the one who brings growth to the church. He is the architect of the church. Jesus is the designer and the builder. Jesus is the one who brings it about. He says, I will build my church. The Apostle Paul would later write this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Did you catch that? Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. It's God who gives the growth. What this means is that Christ must always receive all the glory for every and any good that happens in the church. This is his doing. So as we celebrate this morning all that's happened over the last seven years at Redemption Hill, and as we think about even this exciting step for us, one more step on the journey is we've been able to put some roots down and have our own facility. We need to honor Christ and recognize that anything and everything good here is ultimately his doing. Because Jesus says, I will build my church. Our song ought to be that of the psalmist in Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. God is to be glorified. Christ is to be honored for what he has done in the church. Now listen, I know some of you may have been around the church for a long time. Perhaps some of you grew up in the church and language like praise the Lord or all glory to God or we do everything to the glory of God. That, we've heard that so much and said that so much that it almost becomes just a flippant afterthought that we tack on to our speech but listen, when we say that Christ deserves all the glory for what he has done in the church, this is not just the polite thing to say. This isn't just Christian etiquette to tack this statement on. No, this truth that Christ builds the church, it needs to be believed. It needs to be felt. It needs to be said and sung and preached and prayed with earnest conviction that it is true and that God indeed does deserve all the glory for what he has done through his son by his spirit in his church. Jesus says, I will build my church. But consider the second word in this statement. Jesus says, I will build my church. He says, I will you know, there is always concern for the future of the church among people, and not without reason. There's false doctrine that is alive and well today. There is opposition to the church from without. There's spiritual compromise within the church at large. There's often discouragement, distraction, and failure what certainty do we have that God's purpose through the church will advance? What certainty do we have that the church will be established if Christ tarries in the next generation and in places today where there is no gospel witness? The certainty we have is the promise of Jesus Christ. He says, I will build my church. 
The church's future depends on nothing less than the explicit promise of the perfectly faithful son of the living God. None of his words fail to come to pass. And this promise to build his church is no different. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 reminds us, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Christ's words assure us of the certainty of his plans when he says, I will build my church. He doesn't say that he might build his church. He doesn't say that he could build his church. He doesn't say that he hopes to build his church. No, he says, I will. I will. But this promise, this eternal purpose of God is not without opposition Notice what Jesus says next. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What does that statement mean? Well, I think there's two aspects here to what Jesus is saying. When he refers to the gates of hell and he's speaking about this with this cave right behind him. The disciples can see it over his shoulder. He's reminding them about the power of death itself. The pagan people of that day believed in this underworld where that was the place of the dead. And the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, this realm of the dead, that was a point of no return. Once you enter into Hades, there is no return. But we know that such gates cannot hold Jesus. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, Jesus says, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one, I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and of Hades. You see, Jesus died. He entered into death itself. And then Jesus rose again and conquered death. He opens the gates to bring out of death all who believe in him. Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell, the power of death itself, cannot stop my plans, my purposes. We've been in Exodus for almost a year now. And we know that if Pharaoh could not keep Israel as slaves, neither will death be able to hold those whom Christ calls to himself, those whom he redeems by his blood. Because of Christ's work, spiritual bonds of death are broken. And because of Christ's work, even physical death has been overcome in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The grave could not hold him And death cannot stop his church. They couldn't finally kill Jesus. And they won't be able to kill his church. The gates of hell refers at one level to the power of death itself. And Jesus says, death cannot stop me. But there's another aspect to this statement that I think Jesus is drawing on. The gates of hell represent death But I think the gates of hell here also represent the united powers of darkness. All that is opposed to Christ, to his character, to his purposes, to his righteousness. Remember, they're standing here in the midst of this pagan worship that represented the worldly system, satanic deception. But none of this will be able to stop Christ's purposes. As the 12 watch this procession of idolaters stream by on the highway, headed towards these pagan temples, headed towards this cave, Jesus says, I know this looks bleak. I know there's all of this system that's been built up and in place for centuries. I know there's only 12 of you. 
And I know there's this massive system of entrenched spiritual darkness that's been established here, but I'm going to win. I'm going to overthrow all of this. The gates of hell, the united powers of spiritual darkness, Satan himself cannot stop my purposes. These words should give us hope. These words should fill us with confidence in our bones. We need that. We need that because we too are caught up in this ancient spiritual conflict. Listen, there is a war as old as time that is going on today. Ever since Satan rebelled, there has always been threats to God's redemptive plan, threats to his purposes. Remember Satan's scheme in the garden. He tempted Adam and Eve to cast off the goodness and the rule of their God. We see Cain killing Abel, a threat to this promised seed that was supposed to come. We see Pharaoh in ancient Egypt enslaving Israel and slaughtering the firstborn sons. We see this man Haman seeking to eradicate the Jews. We see King Herod in the New Testament killing all the baby boys in Bethlehem. We see the crucifixion of Jesus himself as Judas is filled with Satan and goes to betray the Son of God to his death. We see persecution of the early church in the New Testament and beyond. Throughout history, we see the slow corruption of the gospel in places like the Roman Catholic Church. We see today present-day threats of culture and poisonous ideologies that threaten the gospel and the church. Yet in every case, every time, without fail, God prevails. God prevails. When Adam and Eve sin, he makes a covering of skin for them, and he promises a rescuer will come. When Cain kills Abel, God gives Adam and Eve another son, Seth, through whom the godly line will continue, through whom this promised seed will come. God redeems his children Israel from slavery in Egypt. He providentially places Queen Esther in exactly the right place, who turns the tables on Haman and thwarts his attempt at genocide. God warns Joseph and Mary through an angelic messenger to escape from Bethlehem so that Herod could not kill the newborn Messiah. Jesus dies, and then he rises again. Three days later, persecution in the New Testament only scatters the seed of the gospel. And even when the gospel seems to be lost or corrupted, God raises up reformers who spark a reformation and recover the biblical truth that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And the godless and pagan ideologies that today seem to be so pervasive, seem to be so strong, seem to pose such a threat to the church, all the different isms that challenge us both from without and corrupt the church from within, one day all of those things will simply be another checked off item on the list of all the failed attempts to thwart the establishment of the church and the advance of the gospel. You can say amen if you want to. It's okay. (laughs) Romans 16.20, Paul tells us, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Death won't stop it, and even Satan and everything he can organize will not thwart my plan. So yes, Christ has opponents, And this means his people will also have opponents. But even the most powerful enemies of the church will never be finally successful. 
If the gates of hell represents this unified power of darkness, the oldest evil in the universe, we know that there is no greater threat than that to the church. So if the gates of hell cannot prevail, you can be certain that no lesser power, no lesser evil will prevail either. Jesus says, I will build my church. Consider the third word in this statement. Jesus says, I will build my church. Build. What is Christ's plan for the church? It's to build it. Jesus is always building. We may be done with some of the renovations here, but the true church, the people of God redeemed through the cross, this called out assembly of Christ following, Christ worshiping people, the true church is always under construction. Always. It's a process. It's a process that takes time. It's a process that takes labor. It's a process that's not easy, but it is a process that does not happen overnight. But it is a process that is happening. It's happening piece by piece, bit by bit. Christ's plan to build his church has both design and purpose. Our Lord has a final end goal in his mind, and he is working towards it. You say, how does Christ build his church? Well, he very simply builds it through the proclamation of the gospel. Remember, Peter has just confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. Later, Peter would proclaim this truth in Acts chapter 2, that Jesus is the Christ, the risen son of the living God. And it tells us that 3,000 people were added that day to the church added to the church. The church was built through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we today continue that same ministry of multiplication. We continue that ministry of multiplication through the proclamation of Christ and him crucified. Romans 1.16 tells us that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed of it. As the gospel is preached throughout the world, Colossians 1 tells us that it bears fruit and increases. It's the gospel that Christ uses to build his church. We know that the church today is the modern day temple of God. It's a building, according to 1 Peter chapter 2, a building that is made out of living stones. As the gospel is preached and dead men and women come to life in Christ, they are made into these living stones that are stacked up together on this foundation of the apostles with Christ as the cornerstone. He's building his church by saving sinners. Christ intends to save many, and he intends to add them to the church. It is in this way that the church is built. So our remodeling tasks here at this address, they may be completed in certain aspects, but our task of proclaiming the gospel, that task through which Christ is building his church, that task lies always before us. Always. Jesus says, I will build my church. And he does it through the proclamation of his gospel, this confession that Peter made that would later come to be this story of crucifixion and resurrection. That's what Jesus uses to build his church. Fourth, Jesus says, I will build my church. My church. Whose church is it? It's Christ's. Jesus is Lord of the church. He is Lord of the church. And we take this from this confession that, partially this confession that Peter just makes, and then what Jesus responds to him. Peter 
confesses you are the Christ, the anointed one. That's what Christ means. He is anointed as king. He has authority. This is a declaration of the authority of Jesus. This authority is also seen in what Jesus says in verse 19. He tells Peter and the apostles, he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That's a statement of profound authority. That Jesus has the authority to give these keys to whom he wishes. Jesus is Lord of the church. Peter confesses him not only to be Messiah, the anointed one, he confesses him to be the son of the living God. All the false gods being worshipped that day at Caesarea Philippi were not alive. They were dead. They were powerless. They were impotent. They had no hands, no eyes, no ears. They could do nothing, see nothing, hear nothing, and say nothing. But Jesus is the son of the living God. He is alive. He is true. And there is no one like him. And he says, this is my church. And I'll build it. And it's mine He's the builder. It belongs to him. So he says, it's my church. What this means is that no leader, no pastor, no denomination has ownership rights. This isn't JD's church or JD and Stephen's church or Countryside's church plant. It's not even our church as a congregation. It's Christ's church. He is Lord of the church. Jesus is Lord who has authority. He is Messiah. He holds the keys. He's the builder, so it belongs to him. He is Lord of the church, but Jesus is also the lover of the church. You see, Christ doesn't only have ownership. He says, it's my church because he owns it, but he also says, this is my church because he has a relationship with his church. That Jesus says the church is his echoes the covenant language of the Old Testament. Again, remember Exodus. Remember what we're talking about in the Old Testament. When God says to Israel, I will be your God and you will be my people. This is covenant language. That there is a relationship here between the God who saves and the people who have been saved. In the new covenant, Jesus says to the church, I am your God and you are my people. We are his because of this relationship he has with us, a relationship that depends on the purchase that he has made with his blood. In Acts chapter 20, 28, it says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. This is Paul giving instruction to the elders of the church. This flock, this church, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. It is the church of God. It is the church that belongs to Christ because he has purchased us with his blood and he did this in love because we are his. He has purchased us for himself, redeemed us through his work on the cross. This love relationship, this bond that we have in the love of Christ is described various ways in the New Testament. He calls us his bride. He calls us the bride. In Ephesians 5, 25 Paul writes, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The model for love at the human level is the profound love that Christ has shown for his bride. He gave himself for us. 
We are his. There's a relationship there. He not only calls us his bride, he also calls us his flock. We don't have time to go there, but in John chapter 10, Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And he says, my sheep hear my voice and they know me. He calls us his flock and he lays down his life for us. More than that, Jesus even calls us his friends. In John 15, verse 13, Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Jesus is Lord of the church, but he is also the great lover of the church. He calls us his own, his bride, his flock, his friends, and he laid down his life for us. Jesus says, I will build my church and we are his because of love. So he is Lord of the church. Jesus is lover of the church, but Jesus is also the life of the church. He says, it is my church because he is its head the head of the church. Ephesians 5.23 says, Christ is the head of the church, his body, and he is himself its savior. The life comes to the church from Christ. He is our head. If you've ever seen a body without a head, there's a problem. That body is not alive. The head is essential and necessary, and Christ is the head of the church. He describes himself in in this life-giving relationship also as the vine. In John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Listen, Jesus is the life of the church. He is the lover of the church. He is the Lord of the church. So he can rightly say, it is mine. It is my church. We must remember whose the church is. And then fifth, Jesus says, I will build my church. I will build my church. What is it that Jesus promises to build? The church. The church is those who confess Christ as Lord, like Peter did here in Matthew chapter 16, who confess Jesus to be the Son of God, to be fully divine. The church is those who know him in contrast to those who don't. We see this in verses 13 through 14. Other people say Jesus is Elijah or a prophet or a good teacher, a good example, but they don't really know him. The church is those who know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The church is those in whom the Spirit of God is at work. In verse 17, Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The church is those in whom divine grace is at work. I think Jesus pulls out um, Peter's dad's name, Jonah. The Hebrew word Jonah has the, the, the idea of dove. It means dove. The Holy Spirit is at work here. The Father has revealed this, and Jesus is pointing this out, that the reason the 12 get it and all these pagan worshipers don't isn't because they're smarter, isn't because they're wiser, isn't because there's something inherently more good in them. It's because God has graciously opened their eyes to the truth. 
That's who the church is. Those in whom the spirit of God is at work. The church is this assembly. The word for church means this group that's been called out and gathered together. So the church is this gathering of spirit-filled believers who are under the authority of Christ, who is their head, their Lord, their Savior. That's the church. And that's what Jesus promises to build. It's important that we recognize exactly what it is Jesus promises to build because he never promised to build or expand facilities. As wonderful as this building is, this isn't what Jesus promised to build. Jesus never promised to build buildings. He promised to build people. He never promised to build our reputation or to enhance our comfort. In fact, those things might be sacrificed for the sake of his purposes. Jesus promised to build the church, a called out group of sinners who are redeemed by Jesus and gather together to worship their savior and make disciples, proclaiming the truth of the gospel. You know, the church can be messy. The church might seem at times to be inefficient. Is this really the best way for God to advance his purposes in the world? Yes, the church is God's program. In this age, we're not a club. We're not a social gathering. The church is not a political constituency. The church is not a charity. The church is not just a community organization. We are those called by God, gathered to Him around His Son, Jesus Christ, a spiritual organism. We are the embassy of his kingdom in this world. The church is God's evangelism program. The church is God's discipleship workshop. And the promise is that he will build his church. He never promises to build seminaries or colleges. He never promises to build parachurch organizations or charities. He promises to build the church, a spiritual organism with biblically defined membership and leaders and mission and doctrine. That's what Jesus is building. And what that means, friends, and this is important, is that it's not just Redemption Hill where God is at work. There are others, even in this city as well, where Christ's church is being built. Even people who don't believe exactly like us, who don't interpret every issue in exactly the same way we do, people who don't do things exactly the way we do it. Listen, we are not the sole representatives of Christ in his church. We're not the only expression of the true church. We are not the sole recipients of this promise. That's one of the reasons why most Sundays we have a time of prayer in our worship service where we pray for the ministry of the gospel in other places. We pray for Jesus to keep this promise. We pray for him to build his church in Lawrence, in Kansas City, in Mexico, in Turkey, in Brazil, in various places. We want to claim this promise and remind ourselves that, yes, Jesus is doing something amazing here in this congregation, but we need to remind ourselves that we're part of a larger program. Jesus is building his church, and he's doing it worldwide in every place throughout time. This promise does apply to us, but it is so much bigger than us. And listen, even if this church were to stop tomorrow, If for some reason this church shut down and disbanded, if this church were seen to be a failure and a flop by everyone, this promise will still march on. Jesus will still build his church. He can do that here and through us, 
or he can raise up others. He can do it in other places. But we need to understand exactly what it is that Jesus promises to build. There's one thing that he promises to build, and it's his church. Each of these words that Jesus speaks are powerfully significant. I will build my church. There's so much spiritual nourishment that I think we can have from meditating on and really savoring this promise. And I will confess to you that these words have largely sustained my soul over the last seven years of church planting, the ups and downs, the risks, the uncertainties, the losses, the challenges. God has ministered to me through this text, and I want him to encourage your soul today as well. If you were to boil everything down, what I want you to take from this message is very simply this, that the promise of Christ in this text, his promise ought to produce in us grateful confidence. Grateful confidence. We can be grateful because Jesus has been faithful. He's doing this. We're seeing it. The only explanation for what you see here today is that Jesus is doing this. And we ought to be so thankful grateful for what he has done. He's keeping his promise. He's advancing this purpose. And we've seen it. We've experienced it. So all praise to God. We thank him and give him all the glory that in his goodness, he has been pleased to do this and to allow us to be part of it, to be used in this process. So this promise of Christ should produce a grateful confidence, gratitude for the past, but also confidence for the future, confidence in what Jesus will do. Because as we look to the future, there is going to be opposition. There is going to be heartbreak and sorrow in this congregation. There will be setbacks. There will be obstacles. There will be challenges within and challenges without. But as we look to the future, there ought to be a holy expectation and a longing in our hearts to see Christ fulfill this promise to build his church in us, through us. And so there ought to be this confidence and this expectation that we seek God's continual blessing on this church, that we ask him to keep fulfilling this promise here, that we ask for his eternal purposes to be manifested here for his glory. So as we celebrate this weekend, we had an open house yesterday. We're having a church picnic this evening where we're getting together just to celebrate all that God has done Let's make sure that we thank God for his abundant provision, for the growth that he has brought about, for this facility that he has entrusted to us. And let's keep always before us his purposes, his promises. May these words of Christ be always before us, that he's the one who does it, that it's his church, and that his purposes will prevail. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Lord, your word is true. Every word. It was true then. It's been true throughout history. It is true today. It will be true tomorrow. Lord, we know that one of the things you use your word to do is to strengthen our faith. I pray that you would increase our faith, that you will build your church. It's easy for us to be fearful apprehensive, discouraged. It's because there's very real threats. 
And we do see people fall all around us. We carry the scars from those battles. We grow weary. Lord, increase our faith. Give us courage. Give us confidence for the future because of your promise. And Father, we do thank you. We thank you for all that you have done. We thank you for this building. We thank you for the people who are here today. We thank you for the people who have come to know you and who have been saved through the preaching of the gospel and the sharing of the gospel through the ministry of this church. We thank you for those who have grown in their faith, for those who have grown in holiness and maturity and wisdom because of the ministry of this church. That's all you're doing. We thank you for the resources you have entrusted to us. We thank you for the people who you have brought with the exact perfect gifts that you knew were needed for each contribution, the ones that are seen, the ones that are secret, the gifts that are notable and the gifts that are easily overlooked. Lord, all of that you have provided and furnished for this church. We thank you for preserving us. We thank you that in a year, 2020, that posed so many challenges to the church, we did not just survive. You caused us to grow. You have produced health and excitement and vigor, passionate worship, eagerness for your mission, a growing fervency of love for one another. You have been doing that here. Lord, this church is not perfect, but there is much good that is happening, and we thank you for all of it. Lord, we do commit ourselves to you today. We belong to you. We are yours, body, soul, and spirit, our money, our time, this building. It all belongs to you. So, Lord, as we thank you for this building, we thank you for where our church is today, we also commit ourselves to you, and we ask that you would use us any way you see fit. If you need to prune us, do it. Sanctify us. Purify us. Make us a holy people. Make us useful and fit for what you want us to do in this world. Lord, we surrender ourselves to you to be instruments in your hands. And we ask that your spirit would empower us and work through us. We know that we can't build the church. We can't build your kingdom or advance your purposes. But you can. And we know that you do it through weak and imperfect vessels like us. So we ask that you would do great and mighty things above and beyond all that we could ask or think. And we offer ourselves wholly to you. We ask for your continual provision and blessing, that you would continue to bring the right people, the right gifts, the financial resources, the spiritual focus, that you would continue to bear fruit. We want to see more people saved. We want to see pagan worshipers who are lost and enslaved and blinded by sin. We want to see them set free. We want to see them added to your church. So we ask that you'd continue to do your work in us and through us, all for the glory of Christ. Amen.